When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. the mini break your date podcast for the biggest storylines results and controversies from the tennis world today is monday may 8th the 2023 madrid masters event now officially in the books it was event that i think has all of us followers of the tennis world wondering who is the best player in the world right now on both the wta and ATP tours, of course, if we're going to contemplate a question so large, as well as recap all the action from Championship Weekend in Madrid. You know I'm calling in a big gun here on today's show to help me do just that. And joining me on today's podcast, as I'm so fortunate to have so frequently here on this show, is a man you all know best as an editorial producer for all things tennis.com and tennis channel, essentially a co-host of the Mini Break Podcast, our dearest friend friend, David Kane. DK, welcome back to the show. How are you feeling? One, one 1,000 event in the books, another on the horizon. Busy times in the tennis world. I got in quite a workout this morning. I had to escape a running <laughs> of the bowls. I'm not saying Iga Shvantec sicked them on me, but I'm not saying she didn't do that. <laughs> I'm just curious what percentage of people who do jobs like we do after a oh, two-week run like that at a 1,000-level event. I know I called it the Madrid Masters. It's just the easiest title for me to go with. Um, I wonder what percentage of journalists, tennis commentators, etc., have to use this Monday as a recovery day. Like, I bet 95% of us, because I also got a long workout in this morning because it was just the first time stretch I had available to me in a while. I feel like what, you think it's a 90% clip of us got at least an hour in the gym this morning? First of all, yes, I will be upping that bit every week that I'm on this podcast. <laughs> and second of all, I mean, it's we're in for the long haul here. I was going to invite one of my friends to come over and watch the Rome final with me. And then it occurred to me that the Rome final isn't until like May 20th and I'm flying to Paris <laughs> on the 22nd. I was like, I can't plan that far ahead. I thought like, at least give me this Saturday. Yeah, it's going to be in one way. I'm grateful for the break between Madrid and Rome now as short as it is. But at the same time, it feels like let's get the show on the road here. I feel like I we finally got some momentum coming out of the finals week and I want more tennis. Well, that's the good news is we have more tennis for everyone coming up this week, obviously, with the 1000 level event in Rome. And again, to get back to the question I asked, which is going to be the central premise of today's show, I know we've had this conversation just about every week you're here. I had this conversation as it relates to the men's side with Gil Gross. But to your point about the abundance of tennis we've seen of late on the calendar, certainly Monte Carlo, Stuttgart, Barcelona, now the action we just saw in Madrid. We have a big sample size. Like, it feels like we are seeing the best players in the world play week after week. And I know we didn't have Djokovic. We haven't had Nadal on the men's side. But certainly to see back-to-back Sabalenka-Sviantec finals, I don't know. It just feels like for the first time this season, and I know 
we're four months into the year. That's a third of the calendar now gone. Again, it's an official sample size or significant sample size, excuse me. I feel like we are in a place where we can begin to address who the best in the world is right now, DK. Don't love you bragging about your private chats with Gil Groves. I mean, that seems really mean. <laughs> well, first of all, it wasn't private. Unnecessary. It, was, it was public. It's available. It was two weeks ago on this show. <laughs> I know you invited an audience and I wasn't one of them. But anyway. <laughs> yeah, it's just, is this just, what the is, is this what the 1980s felt like? Those who are older than us, because this is sort of what people always used to talk about, that there used to be a time when the top players in the world would compete in finals week in and week out. And it's just not quite as good as it used to be. And yet here we are, particularly on the women's side, seeing number one and number two compete in back to back finals with no indication that that's not going to happen in Rome. It feels like we're at this point, we're just spoiled for, you know, luxury at this point. There's no reason to guess that there won't be another uh, Sviantec Sabalenka final on the women's side and on the men's side. We're seeing, you know, the first uh, confluence and convergence of Carlos Alcaraz and Novak Djokovic. And I think that's when we're going to really see perhaps that question be answered on the men's side. But all in all, it feels like we've gotten some really high quality finals, high quality ends of tournaments. And we're really starting to see tournaments, I think, complete the way we I think we're so used to seeing a lot of like first week action really take precedence over the finals, particularly in the women's game. And now we're really seeing things sort of become, what's the word? Not top heavy or bottom heavy or think the shape has gotten. Consolidated, this is, this is great. Maybe? This is, this is, <laughs> is consolidated the word you're looking for? It's sort of consolidated out loud. At the top? <sighs> we're seeing like, the, we're seeing things take shape in a way that I think in, in a logical sense, things are, there's a logical progression now sure. to some of these tournaments that maybe we didn't have for a little while. Yeah, I, mean, I made it. I made it at the end. No, I t- first of all, I thought the entire thing was well said. Um, to, well, to go full circle, I think this will be a fun conversation for those who, like us, are getting their Monday workouts in, uh, because I do think. Look, tennis is a sport, and I know I try to introduce statistics to the chagrin of David Kane as frequently as possible here on this show, but. We all have eyes, and tennis is very much an eye test sort of sport. I can say your forehand is bigger than that forehand, or that backhand is a liability that is going to have that player in trouble against the highest level of competition. And, you know, to watch Alcaraz defend titles in Barcelona, defend title in Madrid, to see it, to your point, back-to-back Sviantec-Sabalenka finals, and while each of them dropped the set on the way to the final I don't think either was under serious threat in any of the matches they played prior to that final. It's just like very clear to anyone who's watching day in, day out. The conversation of who the best player in the world is, it's just like there are four clear candidates, right? On the women's side, I think it's pretty freaking clear. It's either Iga or Sabalenka, and we can get into that debate here on today's show. I think on the men's side, again, Watching Carlos Alcaraz play, I could turn to all of the statistics. I could turn to all of the accolades he racked up. He's second place to Rafael Nadal in just about every category you can look for in terms of modern-day teenage success on the ATP Tour. And, you know, if that isn't enough— just go watch what he did to Borna Cioric this week. Go watch how he worked his way through that Struff match in the final. It's a quality of tennis that your eyes tell your brain is like, oh yeah, that looks like a number one player in the world. I just think, again, I have been beating the drum of generational change on the ATP and WTA tours. That's been a theme here on at our 
on our Crack Rackets podcast, excuse me, maybe since their inception back in 2017. And it's just like to, uh, to use a term I think you were searching for, things have consolidated at the top. It's just like, here it is. These are the two best players right now. It's very clear on the uh, in, on both the men's and women's side, I think, with Djokovic and Alcaraz. And Djokovic, of course, is the asterisk you have to put next to him given the injury concerns. But I guess that's the crux of the conversation I want to have here on today's show, DK. And we'll use Madrid and the results we saw, I suppose, as the rubric and... Guide, uh, guiding points for today's conversation. Of course, the reason we're able to have such fun here day in, day out on this show is because of the support we get from all of you listeners and, of course, because of the support we get from our dear friends at Tennis Point. You all know the deal for all of the latest equipment at the greatest prices. Just go to tennis-point.com today. Use our promo code CR15. Not only will you let them know we sent you there, you'll get 15% off all sale items, free two-day shipping on all orders exceeding $75. Best of all, a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls, tennis-point, symbol not the spelling, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With that said, let's just pick things up right where we left off, DK. And I do think the more interesting conversation, certainly the, the more animated conversation, and the one that's provided more data points to us, given we haven't seen Alcaraz and Djokovic play this season, is the rivalry for number one and two on the women's side. And I think the biggest compliment I can give Arena Sabalenka that hasn't already been directed her way is that she has made it a real race for the number one ranking here in 2023. And if you go back and listen to the podcast we did back in January, not just myself and DK, but any conversation as it pertained to the WTA, the delta between Iga and everyone else in points was so significant that barring a disastrous first four months for Iga, like you weren't even going to have to entertain the race for number one until maybe the start of the summer hard court stretch. And while Iga still has a, you know, about 1,200 point margin between herself and number two, Arena Sabalenka, it's only a 1,200 point gap. And you look for Sabalenka, who has 1,600 more points accumulated than any other player so far in 2023. Obviously, another massive title for her, this time a 1,000 level event in Madrid. DK, the race is on. And obviously, for anyone who didn't watch this past weekend, Sabalenka, 6-3-3-6-6-3 over Iga to flip the script of what we saw in Stuttgart and capture that title. She also beat Sakari fairly comfortably, 4-1 in the semifinals as well. I mean, DK, you've been beating the Sabalenka drum as long as I've known you. Our friendship originated on the Ostrava-Linz grind back at the end of 2020. Um... Your thoughts on what we've seen from Sabalenka, obviously more specifically as it relates to Madrid, but just more broadly, uh, to get back to this theme, there's just not been a letdown this year. So the word I was looking for earlier was backloaded. The okay, women's scores sure. has become backloaded. And, and maybe to uh, the opposite extreme, where I think most of Madrid was spent just waiting for what we thought would be this inevitable Sviantec and Sabalenka final, but we got it. And boy, was it one of the matches of the year. I mean, it was just as well as Sabalenka played. I was really heartened to see just how well Sviantec was able to compete on the clay against the power 
of Sabalenka, and she competes in a way that really presses me most, is the refusal to give up really any unnecessary ground from the back of the court. She is standing as close to the baseline as she can, trying to absorb that pace off the extreme forehand grip and is getting a lot of balls back with interest. You know, Sabalenka had to be that good on Saturday to beat uh, Iga Shriantek, who at numerous times uh, in that final could have just ran away with the match, was up three love in the second set you know, recovered from three love down in the third and very nearly could have ran off, you know, I think a 2022 or even a 2021 Sabalenka would have lost that third set six, three lost the last six games. But the way that Sabalenka has been forced to up her fitness, the way that she has just become so mentally strong. I think what was so telling in that semifinal was when Maria Sakari went on a surge of her own in the start of that opening set of the semifinal, people were asking her, you were up three love and Sakari comes back. And she said, listen, I know that Sakari could play well and it didn't destroy me that she won three straight games. And I was able to just pick up and run away with the rest of the match. And I think that's the inner, that to to quote Andre Rublev, the inner peace, the inner belief Mm. in her game that when she is playing well, she will ultimately win the day. You know, it makes her very tough to beat. And again, we talked about the start of the season and how, you know, had it not been for Sabalenka, we would not be talking about world number one at all because Shrontek has played great yes. <laughs> pretty much all year. She's gained points. You know, she lost Miami points. She gained Madrid points. Um, you know, we wouldn't be talking about the race for number one at all were it not for Sabalenka. And now Sabalenka has put herself in a position where I don't want to de- put any definites here, but I think based on how things go in Rome, it will be up for grabs at the French Open because Arena doesn't have many points to defend. And obviously, Shvantec is the, is the defending champion. So, I mean, we have been hashtag blessed by this really great <laughs> contrast in styles, this uh, convergence in competitive mindsets. Obviously, we think of Arena as being very competitive, but Iga is just as competitive getting going toe-to-toe with someone who is significantly more powerful than her and able to, you know, deliver power of her own. It's become really one of the go-to rivalries and probably the must-watch match on both the men's and women's side, barring a healthy Djokovic versus a healthy Alcaraz at this stage of the tour. Yeah, the so to your point, Iga has played, like, the, the the actual biggest compliment you can give Sabalenka coming out of this Madrid final is that Iga played well, and Sabalenka still beat her, and yeah. <laughs> on a clay court of all places. And I understand the elevation of Madrid. At altitude. Yeah. But, <laughs> but at, yeah, exactly. It's going to help. I don't want anyone burning ball. my house down. Yeah. <laughs> Again, um, just flies through or, or you don't want to get hit by the rhinos. What'd you say? What was the bit at the start of today? What, what, what'd you get hit uh, by? The bulls. The bulls. Yeah, the bulls. Excuse Madrid. Me. Yes, sir. Oh, well Be, giant pizza monsters next week. I don't want to, yeah. I don't want to give it away. <laughs> Suffocated by the, the statue Calzone of David joke. comes to life. And, yeah, and knocks it, me over. yeah, pun intended. Statue of David, DK, shout out. Um, yes, to your point, like the aggression Sap- Sabalenka played with from the start, it was just so clear that she's figured out the game plan. That to you quote about, you know, you're saying about inner peace. I don't know if it's inner peace or just acceptance that this is how I have to play to beat Iga. And yes, there might be some errors that come in between, but if I am not this aggressive, she's just going to crush me. And to your point about Iga's 2023, yes, she gave up the 1,000 points by not playing Miami due to injury. Like, that's a free 1,000 points for Sabalenka to get back. I get, but still made semis of Indian Wells, still won a title, made another final in the Middle East. Second week Australian Open is fine. 
you know, again, wins Stuttgart, now makes a final here in Madrid. It's not as though she's giving points back to Sabalenka. Sabalenka is just finding a way to make that deficit up. And the tennis was breathtaking. It really was. To see how well Sabalenka played Sviantec even on the backhand. I can't believe I'm saying that out loud, but Sabalenka's willingness, any neutral backhand off the racket of Iga Shmiantek. Sabalenka said, all right, I'm going to go line. Like, I'm going depth. I'm playing big. I am taking it to you. And any opportunity I have, whether it's a second serve return, whether it's, you know, again, a, a, a forehand or, or just a ball you leave, not even short, but on the service line, I know I have to be the aggressor. I know I have to take that ball early on the rise, try to swing through the court. And I think the various runs we saw in this match. To your point, it was a very streaky match. Sabalenka goes up an early break. Sviantek gets it back. Sabalenka pulls away in the first set. To your point, when Iga goes up three love in the second, started hitting her first strike on the serve with more effect. It just felt like Sabalenka, maybe it was okay. You played really well in the first set, but it'll be downright impossible to sustain that level. But man, credit to Sabalenka. Again, she did. She does get that break back. She does race off to the early lead in the third set and then is able to play from ahead the whole time, able to sustain her aggression as such with that scoreboard pressure. Again, we're going to get to the Iga side of things in a second because I don't think she played poorly. But it's just a reminder, and this is the crux of Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club. When you have transcendent power, that ability to take the ball off your opponent's racket because your weapons are just the biggest weapons on the court, the match is on your terms. And Sabalenka is one of those generational power tennis players that can just disrupt whatever her opponent wants to do and play on her terms. And we saw her do that against Iga here in this final. We saw her do that. Yes, went up three love. Sakari goes back to three all, but what, Sabalenka won nine of the next 11 games to close out the match four and one? Like, she just stays the course now. And even if errors pile up, to your point, there's never a mental letdown anymore. And that used to be the biggest thing. Like, Sabalenka would fall asleep at the wheel. She just doesn't anymore. And now the entire skill set and athleticism is on display. Stays the course. I mean, even in the quarterfinal against Meyer Sharif, I woke sure. up to Sharif winning the first set, and I I saw how lopsided the scoreline was, and thought, no, oh, Sharif's not going to be able to keep this up. And that's typically you would think, oh, Sabalenka's just having a terrible day, and she's you know not going to be able to figure out a plan B. And no, it was just that Sharif played a really great first set. Sabalenka was able to figure out how to solve you know sort of an unorthodox game style and ran away. With that match, same thing in the semifinal against Sakari. I knew that she was up against a fit, you know, in-form opponent. Stays the course in the final uh, against Sviantec. It's interesting you talk about the need for all-out aggression because I think what Sabalenka's main takeaway over the last couple of matches with Sviantec has been, and I could, you know, testify to this having been, you know, very close to front row watching her semifinal against Iga at the U.S. Open, it's knowing when to pull the trigger. And I sure. think it was a big problem in the semis against Iga in Flushing that, you know, from 4-2 up in the third, she was just gunning for almost every single shot. And a lot of them were going out. And that's how, it's a big reason why Iga was able to run away with that match because she tightened up her game and Arena was still flying. And, and it ended up becoming quite one-way traffic for the pole in the end of that match. I think we're seeing just this refined, it's just fascinating to see this level of refined aggression from Sabalink where it's still like awe-inspiring how hard she could hit the ball. And it's not even 
what she would probably be considered to be her final form. You know, this is just, yeah. this is her, this is her reining it in. And it's yeah. like, it's lung busting. I've long talked about, look, the, the plus one, the first strike behind the serve is obvious. And she's holding over 84% of the time, which if she sustains for the entire year, I'm Massive. pretty sure would be a single season record on the WTA tour. That's obvious to anyone who watches tennis. I have talked at length about how I think she's an underrated mover. I mean, the fluidity for her at that size, you know, with the power she's able to generate, the fact that all she's got to do is get her hands on the ball and then she can generate depth to, at a minimum, keep things neutral. You just can't fake that that sort of athleticism. And, you know, again, the new thing that has jumped out to me of late is just the return of serve. I mean, God, she's seen the ball like a grapefruit. And it's just every return is laced at the feet of Sviantek. And a lot of them are laced body, forehand, side. So then that first forehand is popped up. And that's where Sabalenka had so much success flipping the script. I mean, again, you look in this match, 6-3, 3-6, 6-3, a Sabalenka victory. Uh, she's only broken three times in the match. And she's able to break someone in Ego, who I think is the number four server on the WTA Tour this year. Breaks her four times on 12 breakpoint chances. Like, you're absolutely right. She's more efficient with her play. She's able to sustain it for longer. And just the confidence. She's brimming with confidence. I think my favorite press conference clip I saw all week long was of Sabalenka after the semifinal. She was asked, what do you think about the final? And she's like, I kind of want to play Iga because that's the matchup for me. And, I mean, you love that. Like, she knows, hey, this is who I have to beat. Like, if I can't beat Iga... Why am I even out here? Because that's who this all runs through. And again, to Iga Nation, that's acknowledgement that like Iga is still the standard of what it's going to take to win a title on clay courts on the WTA Tour. But for the first time in over a year, you can say, all right, there is someone who's best can beat Iga Sviantek on clay. And I know she's only done it once, but if you watch Stuttgart, she came pretty darn close to doing it there as well. Sabalenka's on the level. Any final thoughts? Uh, again, because I want to get to the Ega side of things, but any final arena thoughts? Yeah, sure. Just that she came away from that Stuttgart match feeling like she was very much right there, even though yeah. it was a straight set match. She felt like she had knew exactly what to tweak coming into the Madrid final. She employs it. You know, she has used Svantec as that sort of fitness inspiration. I believe she talked about using the offseason to try to get in as good a shape as Svantec. And it's it's paying off because she was able to play that long ass final and keep up with her physically. But yeah, all in all, I mean, it's it was it was a rep. It was one of those reputation matches where you're coming out of the Stuttgart final and thinking, OK, Iga's still the superior clay court player. If she beats her again in Madrid, then OK, Iga's that much more ahead of the field on clay. The fact that she beats her. Uh, that Sabalenka beat Sviantec in the Madrid final creates just a little bit more intrigue coming into Rome, coming into Roland Garros. Okay, this is a two-person race. And depending on how the two compete in Rome, that will really, that's the one last shot before Roland Garros to see who really has the ascendancy. But right now it really feels neck and neck. And it is really the first honest to goodness WTA rivalry in what feels like forever. I'm wearing my Tanya Harding, Nancy <laughs> Kerrigan shirt in honor of the occasion because it also has a little bit of vinegar to it. I don't think they're the best of friends, and yet they're, you know, clearly have a lot of respect for one another, a lot of respect for what the other is able to do on the court. And it's kind of the best of all possible worlds when you get that uh, combination. Absolutely. And it is fascinating because on the Iga side of things, 
she didn't play poorly. And I understand she had she got the the wrong end of the scheduling, you know, stick. She was always the late night match. Everything was going late for Iga. I think her serve, you could see just she didn't really have a rhythm with it all week and it was kind of sitting up for Sabalenka to attack. Sitting up for Alexandrova to attack as well in that round of 16 match. And yet, you know, again, she drops that first set. What does Sviantek do? As Sviantek always does. Races out to that three-love lead. And just immediately, to your point, it's just like, we have a match. We have a rivalry. We have two players who clearly recognize, all right, I'm, I got to gear it up. I got to play my best to beat this player because this is the player it's going to go through for me. And... As fans, how can you just not in, – that's just the absolute delight. That's what we're looking for, especially because these are fresher faces on the earlier end of this blossoming rivalry. And, you know, again, structurally, Iga still top 10 in hold and break percentage on the WTA Tour. Three players right now who you can say that about in 2023. It's her. It's Sabalenka, who's the number 10 returner now and – career high break percentage she's breaking over 40 percent of the time if she's by the way going to break over 40 percent of the time and hold serve over 80 percent of the time you're just losing to her mathematically I don't know how else to say it but like Iga has hovered in that same is hovering in that same zone as well right now and again it takes a transcendent sort of performance you have to have that ability to hit someone off the court for what? It was a three-set match, two hours, 26 minutes. You have to be able to sustain that level for all two-hour, 26 minutes. Because if you have a 15-minute blip or even a 10-minute blip, as we saw for Sabalenka at the start of that second set, Iga's racing off three games in a row. And there's just no margin for error against her. And again, it's another final. She's still world number one. My biggest question, DK, let's nerd out. What's the adjustment you make if you're Sviantek? Do you make an adjustment against Sabalenka, or is it just one of those times where you say, like, look, that was, I mean, again, we all have eyes. She was unreal. Sabalenka played her best in that Madrid final in perfect conditions for her game. Do you write it off if you're Sviantek, or do you make adjustments? So as we've learned, I can be a little critical. <laughs> I often have a laundry list of suggestions for what players can do or not do to improve their chances against different opponents. But coming out of this two-week stretch, I don't know if I have that many recommendations for Sviantec. I mean, she has proven quite admirably so because I think there was starting to be a little bit of maybe unnecessary you know, overreaction to the fact that she was starting to lose a lot of matches to big hitting opponents. And she's gotten some important wins over the last two weeks, whether it was over Pliskova and Stuttgart, Alexandrova in Madrid. It's not just any Sabalenka power player. Stuttgart. And Sabalenka and Stuttgart, absolutely. And yes, you know, duh, <laughs> the yeah. biggest one of all. You yeah. know, like, that. It, it's not just any power performance that's going to be Iga on any given day. And I think what really impressed me, again, yes. during the match, you know, really getting a look at Iga in the final was, it does feel like she's gotten a bit physically stronger. I mean, maybe that's just a little bit of age, a little bit of maturity, but she doesn't look as slim or spelt. Like, there, there yeah. seems to be a lot more muscle in the legs, muscle in the arms. You know, that's... That's paying off. And I think when you're eager, you're coming away from this match feeling like, look, I did everything I could possibly do. The worst thing for me at this point would be to panic and start to feel like my best isn't enough in a bad way. I played my best and that would win 99% of finals. It lost today. Oh, well, you know, I'm still in order for arena to take this French open final for me, for example, she still has to win, you know, another six plus matches to get there over the next couple of weeks. 
And I am still in the front runner pole position. I'm still very much world number one. I'm still very much the player to beat on this surface. I am more naturally comfortable on this surface than anybody else. I wouldn't panic because I just feel like that she's doing everything she possibly can do to maintain her status at the head of the pack. And I think that the worst thing she could do at this point would be to start tinkering and feeling like I have to be because I personally, I would have wanted coming out of the Indian Wells Miami stretch, I would have wanted her to see her experiment more with variety and feel like what could I be doing to better counter the power? Sure. And, you know, she was pretty much going toe to toe with Sabalenka, really absorbing, redirecting the pace, forcing Sabalenka to come up with these sort of awe-inspiring winners. And if you're forcing, you know, the the second best or maybe one of the best players in the game right now to come up with like that kind of tennis to beat you, you know, that's that's a that's a testament to how well that you're playing. So I I wouldn't worry, you know, and I'm sure the temptation is to worry because she's a very analytic thinker and she's someone who may be prone to overthinking. But I would hope that the team around her is reminding her, hey, like you played phenomenal tennis over the last two weeks. You did have to deal with some late matches. I question how much that had to do with whether she would have won the final because, yes, I she agree. did have to play some late matches, but she also did play really quick, efficient matches against the likes sure. of Petra Martic and Kudermatova. What was she there? Like 12 minutes against Kudermatova? <laughs> it really wasn't that close. So, I mean, it'd be one thing if she was up to, you know, if it was like a Davidovich, Fokina, Holger Runa situation and then had to play the final, I feel maybe a little bit differently. But anyway, you know, playing the kind of tennis that we don't often see two years in a row from really any kind of player, we would have expected a much larger dip from her. She stepped up to what had to be a very high pressure time of year for her, where she's defending a zillion and one points, has not only defended, but is gaining coming into Rome, where she's going to be the defending champion there. I wouldn't panic because she's still very much going to be half to 60% to 70% of the pundits pick to win the French Open at this rate, just based on how she's played the last two weeks. More than that, justifiably so. And I agree with you. I, I would not be hitting the panic button. And you said it perfectly. It doesn't just take a power tennis player to beat Iga Swiatek. It takes Arena Sapalenka's power tennis to beat Iga Swiatek. You have to have the athleticism, the fitness to play that level for two and a half hours, and you have to have that unique ability to again play with a 125 mile per hour serve into Iga's forehand, play with blistering returns down the center of the court each and every time that will force Iga to pop a forehand up. Now. Tactically, I'll nerd out for a second, and there are a couple of different examples you can point to. I think it was 5-3, 15-30 in that first set uh, for Sviantec, where in a couple of times, I mean multiple times throughout the match, she was a little patient going backhand to backhand with Sabalenka. I think she expected the Sabalenka backhand to produce an error or for Sabalenka to get a little bit more impatient off of that wing. I would expect Sviantec to play more backhands down the line and force Sabalenka to hit that on-the-run forehand, which, again, it's her bigger ground stroke side. It's the side that's more likely to break down, in my opinion, throughout the course of her career, especially when tested by pace. That said, it's a tricky line to maneuver because, of course, you leave it short. Sabalenka now is on the on the offensive, and she's so good at hitting that forehand down the line behind Iga. You're right, like short angles sound good in theory, but man, Sabalenka's moving well enough to get to that short angle, and it's just fascinating because I think Iga, like Carlos, you can't give her time. They're just the most deadly players in the world when they have time because they can be so unpredictable because they can do anything with that ball, particularly when on the ad side of the court, when given time. How do you create time for yourself against someone like Arena Sabalenka who lives on taking time away. 
it's a fascinating tactical conundrum that, yeah, you figure like, oh, roll her short angle, make her run to that ball and get out there. The problem is she's getting out there. Now she's blitzing a ball at your feet. You're popping it up. She has an approach shot, etc. It's I think that's the thing. Again, this is where we'll go full circle. Last word for you on this rivalry goes to you. But the thing I like most about this is that I don't I agree with you. Sviantek's level has not dipped. Sabalenka's caught up. And the most exciting thing is now we get to see what Iga's next adjustment is. And let's remember, Iga's still 21 years old. Sabalenka just turned 25. Like, they are, I'm fairly confident saying neither player has played the best tennis of their career quite yet that we will see. I'm amped, DK. Final word goes to you. That's crazy to think because in in their respective ways, they both set the bar very high. So to think yeah. that there's even a greater level to come is 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 pretty wild. But again, I think what you're doing right now is exactly what I would advise Iga against doing, which is the yeah. sort of mental spiral of like, how do I like solve the Sphinx? Like, it's just sort but, of like, because you don't want to come out on court against Sabalenka being like, I need to out aggress her. I feel like that's what she did against Rabakina and it didn't work. I feel like there needs to be a measured level of aggression where, yes, I can out hit Sabalenka at times, but I can't be going out there playing to red line because then things will end up going very fast for me. But it's not that. It's changing direction. It's, again, the side decides. It's making not letting Sabalenka hit the same, from the same position more than two balls in a row because, again, with her feet set, we saw how dangerous she can be. I'm not saying, again, she has to tinker immediately. I'm talking 30,000-foot view. I'm saying not this year, but what are the things now if your team, Sviantec, you are emphasizing when you are practicing? Because, like, the same way I said Jessica Pagula has the ego drill now, where her coach just says, Jess, hit the ball as hard as humanly possible for 45 minutes here in practice. And I don't care if you miss 50% of the shots. We're teaching you how to play with weapons. And then you saw what happened at United Cup. Like, she just had to learn to get to that gear. I'm just wondering, like, again, 30,000-foot view, what little adjustments does Iga start to make? I mean, isn't that fascinating? And again, Iga yeah. fans, this is for you. I mean, the fact that Jessica Pagula, Arena Sabalenka are both explicitly looking at Iga saying, this is what I need to do to compete with this player. Yeah. I don't really feel like we were getting that from Barty and maybe because Barty made, maintained a bit of a sparser schedule, maybe because she wasn't as physically imposing on the court. There wasn't this need to be like, I need to compete with her in a way that people are talking about Iga. And again, we talk about that Hall of Fame conversation. My biggest metric is like, did you leave the sport differently than how you found it? And I feel like we're already starting to see that players are recognizing Iga for the game-changing talent that she is. And what can they do with their arsenal to counter that? And now it's up to Iga to then counter the counter. Exactly. tough. It's very tough to do. You're already like a top-of-the-line talent, and then you're trying to outfox those, trying to outfox you. And, like, and she's even discussed, you know, with, with these now longer tournaments, feeling like, you know, she's on the clock. Even when there are days off, there is less time to kind of unwind and unplug. And you don't want her spending too much time thinking about how to compete with the, you know, fast encroaching field that's coming up uh, behind you. And so I, yeah, perhaps with, with time and a time block, she will, you know, again, I think maybe develop a bit more variety, develop, you know, different, a few different shots, different angles and ability to, you know, beef up the serve just a little bit more as she continues to get stronger. Will the serve become that? Cause if we're talking about the quote unquote weakness, it is 
it's the serve. It's the second serve specifically. That's the big opportunity for Sabalenka to set the rally on her own terms. And so that that might almost be the biggest difference. What can she do to tinker with that shot in the long run, the way Sabalenka was able to tinker with her serve to the point where she came out of a two and a half hour match with three double faults. That's like 10 times less double faults than she used to hit in a three set <laughs> match. I mean, that's crazy. I mean, like, it's just, it's not even a question anymore. We know that she's going to come to net and serve peak close to peak uh close to peak uh perfection and yet Sab- and yet Shriantek was still able to take it to three sets so even against a prime serving Sabalenka Shriantek was in the match it's just a matter of you know I think right now in the short term it's about just knowing that I my best is going to beat the majority of the field on any given day and almost everyone on the field on any given day and not feeling the pressure to compete with the fast the fast encroaching field upon you because I think ultimately in the short term she's still very much ahead and on I would say four out of five days she's still going to win that match you know I think I, that's really where she is right now I agree I guess my final, no my final point would be with the the emergence of the level you see from people like Sabalenka or Rabakana on a quicker surface you just can't afford to stagnate now if you're Iga Shvantec you do have to continue to get better on the margins and again I'm not saying Ashley Barty got bored and that's why she retired because obviously she had family interests. She had interests off the court, things she wanted to pursue. But I think we've seen historically in sports, it always helps when you have people to chase alongside with you. And I do think now it's like Iga has some people to run this race with her. I think Barty was also very realistic. I think she hit a point where she realized, you know, I have achieved a lot of what I've – everything I ever thought I could achieve, I did. Let's not push this. And I think Shrantek is, to her credit, a lot more competitive than Barty. I think Shrantek enjoys the pressure. And has maybe a, has a not larger been swallowed imagine, up by it. A big imagination. She says, you know what? I think I can do more. Yeah. I mean, yeah. there's plenty for her to do. There's 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 a lot more strength she could take on. I, I do. Sure. I just think it's too it is to her detriment to start worrying too much about the power because the, yeah. the power of a Sabalenka and a Rebakina are so big that I don't really know what it will take ultimately if they're playing their best. You know, that's when you have, that's that's a Hingis situation where you have to just say sure. too good and not allow yourself to be frustrated by the, the Williams sisters, by the Davenports, that they're going to have these days where they are unplayable unless Shrantek becomes a different kind of athlete, becomes significantly stronger. You know, I don't... Sometimes it's just too good. And the last thing she needs to do is start feeling like, oh, I can't compete because she certainly can. Fair enough. Any final thoughts? Soccer-y? He's great. <laughs> Any soccery, Kudermatova? I don't know. I know you're a big Arena Camilla Begu fan, so maybe you have some extra Madrid thoughts there. Any other women's singles Madrid thoughts? You want to move over to the men's side? Uh, it was a weird women's tournament overall. Just talk about backloaded. It's just you, felt so like nothing. You say, it's true at the same time, like Sviantek versus Kudermatova, Sabalenka versus Sakari is like kind of a cookie cutter semifinal. Yeah. And down to the point where I could have given you the scores of both of those matches before they happened. It just felt very, I mean, God bless Sakari, God bless Kudermatova. They're just very much a rung below the the Sabalenkas and Shvanteks right now. And it just, it didn't really feel, it was, I guess, a good litmus test. Like if if Sakari or Kudermatova really pushed one of them, you would have thought, uh-oh, you know, the, the other one has a big advantage coming into the final. But this is certainly, it was an important week for both Sakari and Kudermatova who you know, risk losing points quickly over the next couple of months. And, you know, this was, a you know, another master semifinal for Sakari, who, other than her Indian Wells semifinal this week, hasn't really had much to show for this year. Same for Kudermatova, got the win over Potapova earlier in the week that certainly I thought Potapova should have won, um, and then got the win over uh, Kasakina to make the semis. So, I mean, it's 
hard to really recommend either of them long-term because you just feel like, again, the top two are so cemented and no one else right now is really even coming close to matching that level of consistent intensity. Yeah. Um, I do think if this has been a take, I've just been st- brewing uh, or still baking in the oven, I suppose. Um, I think Sakari has gotten to the point where people just like so frequently talk about her semifinal struggles that she's become underrated. Like, I mean, again, she has been in these quarterfinals, in this top 10. She's been the, uh, the year on finals back-to-back seasons. Like, if she makes it this year, which she is positioning herself to do right now, that's three straight years. And when I have some time this summer, I'm going to go look back and see how many players have made three straight tour finals. That's a run, DK. When you have three straight top 10, like, that's – I'm not saying that gets you into the Hall of Fame. But if you even want to not be laughed out of the conversation, you better make the World Tour Finals three straight seasons because that means you are a significant part of significant events for three – you know, for a three-year run, like for a third of a decade. And, again, I'm not saying – she is one of the best players in the world. I'm not even saying she's a Hall of Famer. I'm saying she's been really good for a really long time. Like, if she does this, because what? She is, I think, a 96er, so she turns 27 this year. If she goes on a five-year run in the top 10, let's just say she, again, makes the year-end finals. That's the litmus test. And every year from now until she turns 30. That's like Ferrer-esque. Like, again, it's it's like, again, it's a... It's a significant run where I'm not saying it's the Hall of Fame, but it's the Hall of Very, Very Good. Oh, boy. Um, where to begin? <laughs> I mean, it's just, look, for Sakari to be doing what she's doing is in many ways an indictment of the current field. You know, it's just, okay. it just is. You know, God bless her. I love her. She's one of the nicest players to talk to. Incredible shape. Plays one to two really good matches a year. And when we were getting close in that first set, I was thinking, is this her one really good match that she's going to redline against Sabalenka and then, you know, have it be two and two in the final against Shantek? Like it kind of felt like, and and it's one of those situations where you feel like, all right, well, I mean, too good. You know, Sakari had one of those days and she was due for it. You know, she's like my, uh, she's like my Saks Fifth Avenue credit. I get like a $50 off twice a year and then she cashes it in. Um, But it's, it's just one of those things where if you're going to compare her to other historical consistent players, I think she would very much be the odd one out of any of those conversations because she just doesn't have the resume. She just doesn't have the killer instinct right now to, to have a, you know, to have a a resume that justifies even that ranking in many respects, you know, it felt like things were maybe about to settle. You know, she's a very, she's a top 20 player. I don't think she's a top five player. And I think that the fact that she has been so close to being one, in general over the last couple of years is more just because of the inconsistencies and lack of, you know, a core four, you know, on the WTA side. And maybe we'll see how the schedule, how the calendar develops, you know, how things will, how the two week tournaments will affect things. And we're talking about, you know, maybe second week tournaments and maybe that, that squeeze on the proverbial tennis middle class, how that affects players like um, Sakari and even down to an Elise Mertens outside the top 20. It's just one of those things where, you know, it's hard for me to read into any result that Sakari has because she's yet to have one that's different from her current narrative. If she, you know, she would have to really beat Sabalenka and Shriantek back to back to really upset the apple cart here because anything short of that would be just sort of par for the course. And for her, her par for the course has been decidedly lower than your current top two, for example. It's fair. And historic top five players. It's fair. All I'm saying is if the point 
of being a pro athlete is to not need to have a second job afterwards. Maria Sakri is not going to need a second job. Like she will make enough money in her pro tennis career that the last 60 plus years of life are gravy. And I'm just saying. And she wouldn't even, I don't even know if she would need tennis for that. I mean, she's yeah. just someone who I think yeah. does have a certain business mind, launched the logo, is a great talker. You know, I see her being a part of the tennis media ecosystem. If that's something she wants to do, she certainly has a spot in it because I think she is one of those players who I think sees the game really well. I would be fascinated to see how she functions as a coach, how she functions as an analyst, because I just think that she has that mind. And, you know, and oftentimes those minds don't, aren't always able to translate it onto the court consistently. So I, her long-term contribution to the sport, well, I wouldn't relegate it specifically to what she does or doesn't do results-wise. Because I think she is certainly a value add overall, if for nothing else, the fact that she's, you know, a historic presence as, you know, the first Greek player to do a whole myriad of things on the WTA tour. All right. I like it. Well, with that said, then let's move on to the men's side. I anticipate this will be a shorter conversation. And since you are... I don't want to say upset, but not thrilled that I asked Gil Gross this question and not you. I'll ask it to you now. Is Carlos Alcaraz good enough to be considered the best player in the world? Like when you watch Carlos Alcaraz, can you say legitimately, oh yeah, straight up, head to head, I would pick him against Djokovic? There's so many qualifications because it's like, are you the best player right now? Are you the best player on the surface? Are you the best player when Djokovic is healthy? I think right now, today, Monday, May May 8th, He's probably the best player right now because his closest competition on this surface at this stage of the season, Novak Djokovic, is not seemingly 100% healthy. His other competition is Daniel Medvedev, who is not great on the surface because I think coming out of the hardcore season, I was willing to argue Medvedev over Alcaraz just sure. overall. Um, but I think right now, given how high Alcaraz's ceiling is, the fact that he doesn't have a healthy, comfortable rival at this stage of the season, he is the best player in the world right now. And I just think perhaps for the foreseeable future. Well, I just think when I watch him play, and again, three-set win for Alcaraz over Struff in the final to defend his Madrid title. He also gets wins over Chorich, Hachinov, Zverev, Dimitrov, Rusevori on his way to the title. And then again, like, Struff's gone from outside the top 100 to inside the top 35 in four weeks. That is a ridiculous run. We gave Karatsev all this love after he did something like that in six months. Took Struff four weeks to do it at 33 years old. Absolutely ridiculous. And I actually think part of the reason it wasn't made a bigger deal that Jan Leonard Struff as a lucky loser made the final in Madrid is because everyone was watching Struff play. And I know he just had the Monte Carlo quarterfinal, but everyone was watching Struff, his weapons, his aggression, and it was just like, yeah, this guy's really f-ing good. Like, yeah, he deserves to be in the final this week. This guy's playing lights out. And that's why I think people weren't freaking out the way or, you know, didn't evoke the reaction a normal lucky loser run like this to a final perhaps would. You're making a eh, face. Go ahead. Well, and also sexism. I mean, let's just call it what it is. I mean, there were two lucky losers in the quarters of the straw. There was a qualifier. I mean, this was just like if this was a women's draw, it wouldn't matter how inspiring, you know, the equivalent of Struve's servant forehand was. It just would have been, a, this would have been raked across the calls. It would have been a joke final. You know, the fact that um, Struve took it to three sets, you know, it would have been, well, you know, he fought back. It was actually a really good match and you'd have to really fight to convince them that it was a good match. I mean, th- the fact that Alcaraz did not, you know, beat the lucky loser in the final in straight sets for me feels like the big headline. It certainly would have been the big headline if it was Iga or Arena playing a lucky loser in a Masters final. It would have been, I can't believe that they were allowed to take take them to three sets. You know, what... 
what does that say about the current state of the top two? I think it's just there are certain benefits of the doubt that this tour gets and, you know, certainly not undeservedly so, because, again, I'm glad that Struve played well. I'm glad that he did what he did. But this is not the conversation that a lot of people, I'm not saying you, but a lot of people would be having in an equivalent women's draw world number one versus lucky loser masters final. I don't think that's an unfair point. I would say it was noticeable that people were very accepting of the lucky loser Struve in the final. And again, a lot of that had to do with what you saw from him throughout the course of the week. That's why I mean that's why I brought it up here on today's show. And that's why I want. He's to also have a him. sentimental favorite. I feel like people do sure. like him, so that we, all, he's we a had familiar him on face, but not that familiar. Yeah, no. Again, you can go listen to our conversation. Seems like a very nice guy. You can go watch our conversation on YouTube, DK, if you want to really see what we were chatting about in uh, Phoenix. But yeah, I just like I just think I test wise when I watch Alcaraz play, it's as good as anyone I see. And as I alluded to in the Ega rant, like. Give Carlos Alcaraz time on the forehand wing and credit to Jan Lennerstruf who had an ability to take away time from Alcaraz that few others in the men's game could possibly hope to reproduce. If Carlos Alcaraz has time, he's just beating you. And, like, that's what the best players in the world do in any sport. Like, when they are able to play on their terms, they're just going to beat you. And, again, physically on this surface how well he moves in and out of corners. The fact that literally he can take returns of serve and make it look like the opponents are dropping hit and feeding it, right? Like it's an underhand drop and hit feed as if you're playing a ground stroke game with one of your friends. No, that's Jan Leonard Struve's 115 mile per hour second serve that Alcaraz, because he's six feet behind the baseline, he takes like two steps to the left and he's hitting a perfectly set forehand to just rip that ball at your feet. And again, you can't give him time because if you do drop shots, down the line, inside out, the heaviness, weight of shot. He's just beating you at this altitude. Good luck dealing with that ball for two-plus hours. Like, I thought George played really well in the semifinals. Obviously, Struff, who goes down an early break in set one, gets the break back, takes the second set, was a real fight in that match in the final. And yet, Alcaraz won all those matches. Again, he now goes back-to-back between Barcelona and and uh, Madrid to start his clay court season. I just think eye test-wise, result-wise, and we've seen this Alcaraz now for over a year, I'm just ready to accept that he is playing best player in the world tennis. And, like, do I think it's a 50-50 match between he and Djokovic? Yes, but again, that's the highest compliment I can pay Alcaraz. It's that it's like, you know what? I need to see Djokovic beat you because I'm not entirely sure he could right now. Your tennis is that good. Your belief in self is that real. And like, you know, this is a running bit here at the mini break. I always go back to the Vienna match. Yannick Sinner played against Francis Tiafo, where Tiafo just got the crowd on his side and engaged. You in always energy. go back to that match? It's a bit Gill and I do. I'm just trying to make you jealous. Um, we talk about that match as Sinner. That was the first time Sinner was just like, I need to embrace crowds. Like, I need to do this because Tiafo did it and it helped him and I don't do this and it could help me. And so, like, it's a little bit more manufactured when you see Sinner try to get a crowd pumped up. It's just not as natural for him to be that outgoing. Handed a glove for Carlos Alcaraz. And it helps to be in his home country, obviously, in the capital in Madrid. But, like, when Carlos Alcaraz needs to let out a bamos, it's coming out. And, like, the crowd is going nuts. He just has that number one swag to him. Like, I just, I'm ready to accept it. Like, I do, I've been the driver of the Sinner is as good bandwagon. And yet, it's just, it's the complete package. It's the what you see on court 
plus the way he carries himself like a number one player in the world. It's the same thing I said about Iga. The fact that she dropped that set immediately races out to a three-love lead in the second. That's what world number ones do. I think Iga has it. I think we've seen it from Sabalenka this year. Obviously, we saw it from Djokovic in January. I agree. We saw it from Medvedev's on on hard courts. But I think from the start of the year, since he's been healthy, we've seen it from Carlos Alcaraz. And that's not a hot take. I just think it's like it's definitive now. Yeah, I mean, the only thing I would say is that we were pretty much in this position in many ways last year, maybe prematurely so. I mean, coming into Rome, it was all about Alcaraz and maybe all about Alcaraz versus Djokovic. We wanted to see that rematch, but Alcaraz was seemingly on the ascendant. And then Djokovic won Rome, and then all of a sudden the narrative sort of flipped it a little bit. So we could see something very different play out over the next two weeks. You know, Djokovic with this two-week tournament may have time to sort of play his way back into form. If he's not feeling 100% healthy yet, he may in two weeks. And, you, you know, that, that might really change things. The only difference, again, is that he seemed seems a bit more injured this time around than he did last year. And so how is he holding up physically? Will he keep in, you know, how how much of this tournament will he even compete based on the fact that he wasn't able to play Madrid? So it feels like, you know, the way that Alcaraz plays, his youth, you know, his exuberance, the fact that he, he just feels like another once-in-a-lifetime, once-in-a-generation talent, you know, is able to, again, command the crowd. How can you not command the crowd the way that he plays the way that he's able to the athleticism is very I mean people talk about you know athleticism and I don't think we talk enough about how it really does enrapture a crowd especially the way that Alcaraz is able to co- combine that athleticism with power I think people would, would would much rather see tremendous I mean the way the crowds for I'm not comparing him to sure. this player explicitly but uh, the way that the crowds got up for Caroline Wozniacki like tracking you know, what would have been a winner for Maria Sharapova was better than a Sharapova winner. You know, I think people <laughs> love that that athleticism and the fact that Alcaraz is able to track these sort of unbelievable shots and then put them away with interest. He just, he's going to be a crowd favorite. He seems, you know, the way that he's able to relate to fans, he seems very friendly. I think that's going to just make him an instant star in an, in an, on, on a tour where we've been looking for this next, you know, bright light. The men's game has it. And now how will... Your Djokovic's, your Nadal's respond over the next month and a half remains to be seen. But you just said it there perfectly. They have to respond. Like, they have to respond to what this kid has done. This kid, this 20-year-old, what Elkaraz, the world number one, has done. And look, I know we're not talking about the tennis. What do you, you know, if he has time and he is set on the ad side of the court, he can hit a drop shot, cross court. He can hit a drop shot down the line. He can hit the forehand inside out. He can hit the forehand inside in. He can hit the backhand cross. He can hit the backhand line. He can hit all the things short angle. He can track down that extra ball. Carlos Alcaraz has every tool in the toolbox. The only issue for him is sometimes he tries to hit his way through problems and, like, you know, again, learning second gear, third gear, fourth gear, things that come with experience, that that's all he has to do is just further massage his efficiency. Like, that's all you can ask for as a 20-year-old. The tennis is unquestionable. But I do think, again, staying power, because tennis is such a long... It's a grind. It's just week in, week out. Again, we just turned the page from Madrid. We go right into Rome. I think Alcaraz is, you know, it's a year in. He's proven he has staying power. He's proven this level is not a flash in the pan. This is who he is. It's only going to get better as he continues to mature physically, mentally. He's got such a great support group around him. Obviously, you can tell the connection between he and Juan Carlos Ferrero, what that means to him. I mean, again, like, Struve played really good tennis. All these guys, like, look at these score blinds. You know, 2-5 and five over Dimitrov, but... 
That first set was a blitz. One and two over Zverev. Four and five over Hatchinov. And Hatchinov played really well in that match. Still straight sets. Four and three over Chorch. Chorch was able to play a little offense through the first half of the first set. Wasn't able to sustain it and keep up with the buzzsaw that is Alcaraz. And then again, three set final against the guy who took his best swing. Who took his biggest cut, his biggest shots in Jan Leonard Struff. Alcaraz able to take those punches, work his way through. Watching him dip returns at Struff's feet were just, you're just like, how does this kid do it? I don't know. Any final Alcaraz thoughts before we move on? Is he the favorite? Or if Djokovic wins Rome, is Djokovic now the favorite again? Or is Alcaraz, are they co-favorites no matter what entering the French? Well, it certainly depends how Djokovic wins Rome. If he wins Rome the way he did last year and comes off, you know, super dominant, then yes, I think Djokovic. Yeah, I mean, it has to be because you can't just say, you know, if Djokovic could win Rome in in a very, you know, unconvincing manner, perhaps because he is just that good. And yet, you know, you know, Alcaraz could something could happen. Alcaraz could pull out. There could be all kinds of, you know, that's the other thing with Alcaraz is can he stay healthy? He's had some, you know health dips over the last year and a half where he's looked unstoppable and then all of a sudden he's not able to compete on court. So I think that's also the the push and pull with the Alcaraz narrative because there is the temptation to just go up, up and away with him because he is so impressive and young and shiny and new and yet sometimes he can crack and then we got to put him back on the shelf for a couple of weeks. Sure. But I think if Djokovic, you know, dominates and, you know, dominates Alcaraz and wins Rome, then I think Djokovic becomes the number one favorite again to win Roland Garros. I think anything short of that, they would be co-favorites and anything worse from Djokovic would be, would would continue to have Alcaraz in the driver's seat. Certainly right now he's in the driver's seat for Roland Garros. And yeah, again, this is perhaps a different position where Djokovic really has to quote unquote respond in a way where maybe last year we felt like he did, but he really didn't because he still had so much more experience and momentum behind him. Whereas now things are a little bit different. Yeah. Now Djokovic in the Rune, uh, in the Djokovic quarter, it's Runa, Korda, Dimitrov, Dimonauer, Nori, F.A., Kasmenovic, guys who have, other than Runa, a bunch of guys who have struggled of late. So he'll certainly have some time to work his way into that Rome draw. Alcaraz, he's got Tsitsipas in his quarter. That's the last thing I want to throw at you as it relates to the men's side in Madrid. For Tsitsipas, I mean, again, Struff played really well. For Tsitsipas, though, to not make that final. I mean, Struff, Struff was better at executing Tsitsipas' game plan than Tsitsipas was. It was a battle of first serve, first strike, who can execute it better. The difference was Struff was a little bit more comfortable taking his backhand line. I mean, it's twofold. I watched the match. I don't think Tsitsipas played poorly in losing to Struff, but he lost. Like, you can't look at how that draw broke down. You can't look at where Tsitsipas is. His just need to get another repetition over uh, against Alcaraz, who just gave him the business in Barcelona. It's it's kind of a disaster. I, I just don't know. I don't, I, I'm, Tsitsipas, I probably, my feelings on Tsitsipas and his 30,000-foot view moving forward probably has more variance day in, day out than any player on tour. I just, because like there are times when you're like, yeah, this is a tier one guy. And then there are times where you're just like, but the weakness is so obvious. Yeah, I've always been in a very similar place with Tsitsipas since he didn't win the French Open in 2021. So if you stuck with me, you wouldn't be dealing with all this up and down because I feel like, again, talk about a reputation week for Tsitsipas. He kind of had to make the final to keep up, much less usurp but we were talking about what can he do to 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 move ahead of the likes of Djokovic and Alcaraz and he would have to beat one of them in these tournaments to do that but at least to keep up he'd have to make the final and so to lose a match to someone like Struve who has notoriously not always been a great closer 
has not always been a great closer and then loses in the third set anyway after winning the second set. Just not great. Not great. And he's someone who's performed well in Madrid in the past, made the final, made semis last year. So this is not like, you know, necessarily an altitude issue where he's just not as great in Madrid clay as he is in Rome and Monte Carlo clay, you know, makes the quarterfinals of Monte Carlo quarterfinals here. Wasn't that competitive against Alcaraz in Barcelona in the finals. So you just feel like the, the gap is really widening and, you know, without Djokovic and Nadal being healthy, Alcaraz is very much in a class of his own. I think that's also the difference from la- this year to last year is that it felt like there were at least some people close, you know, if nothing else, just by sheer momentum, reputation, whereas now it's just there's really nobody <laughs> right now who is well known to be healthy and can compete ball in, ball out with 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 Alcaraz. And that really makes him the standout of the field. And it, it really puts... Uh, Sits in, in in a bit of a corner here because now we're, you know, time is starting to really tick away for him, and you know, he doesn't perform well at Rome and Roland Garros, and then you know the grass court season will be pretty much up in the air, and then becomes kind of a lost year for for Steph after starting the year so strong and trying to make that push to be a top tier guy, and it feels like it might not happen this year at well, the rate that this is going. You bring up an excellent sentiment, which is who is Rome most important for really the last big warm-up event prior to the start of the French Open. I want to ask you that to end the show. A lot of people. (laughs) Yeah, before we do, extracurricular Madrid storylines. I think I was fortunate to miss some of these because we were broadcasting what was a phenomenal opening weekend of the NCAA tournament. And, of course, we'll have coverage of the Sweet 16 for you all on Friday and Saturday this weekend. You had your cake and ate it too. Yeah, some might argue. Um, Kate Gate, Coco Goff in the women's doubles final ceremony. Can you explain to our listeners what happened and can you offer a take on it? Because, again, I, I kind of missed out on this. and I, I think it sounds like I was fortunate, too. It just felt like something that snowballed bigger and bigger. It kind of hit the mainstream in a way that I don't think people expected it to. It started off with something of a, a viral tweet from a fan who compared – uh, Arena Sabalenka's cake, birthday cake to Carlos Alcaraz's birthday cake. As we know, they're both born on the same day, both born on Cinco de Yeah, I think it's May Cinco 5th. De Mayo. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, both born on May 5th. And it really snowballed from the sort of Twitter moment all the way onto the mainstream, just sort of going, getting bigger and bigger than anyone expected to. It started off with this, this sort of viral tweet from a fan comparing the cake that Arena Sabalenka got from the Madrid tournament to the the monstrosity of a cake that uh, Carlos Alcaraz received on court during his match. Uh, both Sabalenka and Alcaraz born on the same day. Clearly, Sabalenka was on site that day to receive her cake, um, and they compared it. Obviously, hers was a bit more um, homely compared to what Alcaraz received. A, a fan put them side by side. Bianca Andreescu was the first one I saw to retweet it and kind of make it and you know call out the disparity in in size and in importance and. Um, Victoria Azarenka was next to jump in and say that this was a this was an issue. And then tournament director uh, Feliciano Lopez, you know, tried to defend the tournament and himself against the criticism, she, trying to introduce Holger Runa's birthday cake into evidence that, that it wasn't a sexist thing because look at Holger Runa's cake. It wasn't a big deal. And also Sabalenka wasn't playing that day. And this was part of a um, part of an on-court presentation to someone like Alcaraz, who's from Spain, playing his match that day. And Things only got worse from for Lopez from there. The fans were not really happy about it. I think I saw hashtag Feliciano cancellation trending. And this is a guy who I think has always been well beloved for fan, from fans for his looks and his friendship with Andy Murray. Always seemed like, you know, a guy that people enjoyed. 
things spiral into the women's final where uh, Lopez sort of gets back-to-back digs, both from Shvantec about having to play so many late matches and Sabalenka about the cake that she received. The cake helped her play and win the tournament. And Lopez seemingly was not great at hiding his disdain for these two comments, really wasn't able to laugh either of them off. And then uh, culminates with the women's doubles final, which featured Azarenka, who won the tournament. And then for some reason, there was no um, trophy, proper trophy ceremony for the women's doubles teams where they were not uh, able to address the fans. Both Coco Goff and Victoria Azarenka went on Twitter to say that they were disappointed to not be able to address the fans. And there seems to be no concrete reason for why that was not the case. And people are surmising that it's because they didn't want somebody to make another comment uh, at the expense of the tournament. Just really an unfortunate situation for a tournament that has gotten a bad rap over the years for being one that favors one tour over the other. And you can guess which tour I am talking about. And so in in a vacuum, perhaps would have just been a funny coincidence, a funny tweet became sort of an indictment against tour the, the tournament for past mistakes and past grievances. And so, I mean, for me, is it a surprise that there was a big on-court celebration for a player who was playing a match that day? One, it's his birthday, you get the big cake. No. At the same time, you know that there's another world number two who's still in the tournament. It's her birthday. Maybe you just combine the ceremony. You, you bring Sabalenka out and after the match, you have a, a joint birthday. You have a big cake for both of them. It would have cost very little to write and arena on the cake. It wouldn't necessarily need to be two equivalent cakes, you know, talking about the logistics of what this could have been done to solve it. I think it would have just been a, a moment to celebrate both players. And obviously the fact that now Sabalenka is a two-time champion of the tournament. You don't want any ill will on her side. And we're just seeing the pitfalls also of, you know, the... What happens when a player, a former player, becomes a tournament director? You know, how are they navigating these sorts of grievances from players, grievances from fans? You know, they're not necessarily trained to be tournament directors. You know, what is what are the responsibilities that are that are involved in that? And obviously, there were issues last year at other tournaments um, with other players turned tournament directors, where people weren't always happy with all the decisions made. And this is a learning curve for them as well. But all in all, it's just a, a strange incident. Much much to do about cake and for for nothing and also something. All right. With all that said, then let's move on to our final topic here: Rome thoughts. I'll just we'll no thoughts on Cakegate, Alex Gruskin. None from you. I mean, I have thoughts. Like, when has the issue ever been? Just order a second cake. Like, when is it? Ever, you know what? I'll take two cakes. Like, no one's ever been like, ah, that's a bad idea. Like, yeah, okay, let's get two. Uh, two of the same one. It's just easy. Double the order. Um, I just don't know enough about the history. Again. It's, it, Feliciano Lopez is not a professional tournament administrator. Feliciano Lopez is a former pro player who they asked to put a shiny face on Madrid. And if you want to know why administrative things get overlooked or perhaps, again, under un, undervalued, you have to look at the leadership. Like, it absolutely falls at his feet. So, no, I agree with everything you said. That's why I have nothing to add because, as always, you speak on behalf of both of us. I will also add, though, that I don't envy the position of tournament director. Oh, it's miserable. One is it's to miserable. Be, to be a tournament director, you have to be appealing to the fans, the players, the media, no, the your sponsors, job is to field the, complaints. the supervisors All on both do. tours. I mean, yeah. it is – there are so many competing interests in one tournament. I, I mean, I'm speaking once to a tournament supervisor, who's not even a tournament director, just the contempt for the – just the, not the contempt, just sort of the frustration with – what it takes to put together this tournament. They say, oh, 
she was telling me, you know, people think we just go in a room and throw names on the board. You know, there's so much involved with even just the day-to-day scheduling of who has to play when, factoring in doubles, factoring in interest, factoring in, you know, uh, fatigue and everything else. There's just so many moving parts that I would never want to be a tournament director. So I'll just put that on the table. No, I'd rather eat a slice of cake. The only time you're going to get presses as tournament directors if you mess something up because no one's going to be like, you know what? That tournament operationally was flawless, and that's going to be the lead of today's mini-break podcast. Like, that's never going to be the case. It's only going to be the lead when you screw something up. I couldn't agree with you more. It is not a glorified position. By the way, speaking of an unglorified position, line judges out, technology on the way in by 2025. That was another storyline we should probably throw in. I'm all for automated line calling. I like – okay. How do I say this lovingly? Because I love chair umpires. They're the nicest people in the world. Again, all you do is hear complaints all day long. It's very rare that someone's going to go up and say, hey, man, you called a great match. Like, thanks for everything you did there. Um, But the idea that automated line calling is like, now we're not going to have a feeder system for chair umpires. Like, Shut your mouth. Like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I guess that would be my extra thing is it's like, okay, it's not easy to be a chair umpire, but it's not as though being a line judge is like, now I am prepared to be a chair umpire. Now I've gone through the four different stages and I played triple A ball as a line judge at the Challenger in Cleveland. And now I'm prepared to be a chair umpire. Like, no, I just like, if you are, if you are trying to be a chair umpire, you are predisposed to the sport. You are not pursuing chair umpiring in your quest to conquer umpiring. You are pursuing chair umpiring be- because you have a, a pre-existing inclination and passion for tennis. And that's the only prerequisite I care about for chair umpires. Like know the rules. Enjoy the sport. I don't need you to do four years on the challenger tour before you're ready to sit in the big chair. Yeah, I certainly haven't heard that argument coming from um, one of my close friends who's a big umpire, lines person, aficionado, Vika Chiesa, that the lack of um, uh, in-person officiating you know, is in some way detrimental to the uh, developments of chair umpires. Hopefully there are other apparatuses in place to develop uh, such people because we will certainly need them over the next you know, decade and a half. Maria Chichak can't umpire everything <laughs> for the next 50 years. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, it's one of those things where they were such a big, it was such a huge, it's an interesting lesson for tennis who's often so afraid of change that like what seemed like a monumental change to not have line umpires has kind of gone unnoticed for the most part. And, and I would hope the lesson for tennis would be let's experiment with more changes because here was one of these, you know, things that we thought we couldn't ever live without. We have, we are suddenly living without and have not suffered for it. And I, I would hope that that would lead to more innovations, more shifts in the sport that sometimes is very resistant to change. I'll say that for sure. Very fair. All right, then last thing. Djokovic aside, give me one man, one woman, Rome's most important for in your mind. Uh, I mean, Casper Rude on the men's side, sure. if not Stefanos Tsitsipas. I mean, like, this was the moment last year where after a bad Monte Carlo, a bad Madrid, Casper Rude made the semis in Rome and kind of clicked into gear, made the French Open final and kicked off the year that he ended up having. And it's just, it hasn't happened yet. And it's really, you know, the opportunities that he did have to gain points, a lot of points this year, he's unfortunately now again left on the table and it's going to have a very busy next six months trying to defend um, the second half of the season and, and hasn't really shown indication that he's close to figuring it out. But at the same time, he didn't seem close to figuring it out this time last year and he was able to turn it around in Rome. 
on the women's side, who is it most important for? I mean, is Anjabor healthy? You know, obviously sure. missed Madrid, wasn't able to defend her title. Perhaps even a Barbora Krechkova, who has yeah, kind of uh, slid back a little bit in Stuttgart and Madrid. We kind of thought she was – she certainly thought she was the fourth player. I mean, if you're going to say uh, Krechkova, I'll say Rabakina, who's also been sort of a non-factor sure. since the tour moved off of hard courts. You know, we, we were looking for that core three, and I started to see a bit of a – uh, image macro floating around comparing Serena Sharapova and Azarenka to Iga, Arena, and Elena. And Elena's been pretty absent uh, since the clay swing. So I, I, I think that's uh, that's a little bit – we want to see as many top players playing consistently fantastic tennis. Right now we've got two. I'd love to see a few more. So if, if it's not Jabor, if it's not Krejcikova, if it's not Rabakina, I hope it's I hope somebody steps up to the plate in the next uh, couple of weeks and delivers some consistent tennis. Yeah, the answer is the Jabur quarter on the women's side. Jabur, Bedosa, Kostyuk, Alexandrova, Krejcikova, Ostapenko, Kasakina, Trevisan, Mukova, all in the same quarter. I could make a case for all of those players on why they should be like the fifth name on the contenders list when it's French Open time. And whoever wins this quarter will have a ton of momentum going into Roland Garros. I was going to say Krejcikova just because, to your point, if you're elite, show me. It's been a couple weeks since you have been. You have the opportunity to do so again. Rude's a very good argument on the men's side because he did make the French Open final last year, so you feel like he is one of those guys who could make another definitive run here this season. Can I say just like ATP tier two and a half or tier three? Like the guy's like, where has Cam Norrie been? Where has Hubi Hercots been? Where has Felix Ogier Aliassime been? It's like guys who were on the precipice, whether it's last fall, last summer, of really being top 12 to top eight guys. And just have disappeared. They weren't making the Madrid quarterfinal, that's for sure. Yeah, and just like, <laughs> yeah, just have like, if disappeared, like again, I I just wonder, like again, this this Djokovic section of the draw, Felix, Nori, Corda, healthy, like all guys, I'm really interested in. Where is Felix in the draw? Is he playing here in Madrid? I thought he was, but I don't see him anywhere. So maybe he's not. Maybe he's been out with injury, and so that's the answer of where has Felix been? But just more broadly, like that that whole tier of oh, Felix is the ten seed. Excuse me, he's also in the Djokovic section. Yeah, I guess it's the Djokovic quarter. Like, who is uh, – Aruna right now is the guy playing best in that entire section. I know Murray just won a challenger title, but, like, Runa of everyone on this list has been the best guy on clay. I excluded Djokovic from being allowed in the answer, so I'll just say the Djokovic quarter. Yeah, I mean, it's I, it, w- it would be pretty important for Djokovic to kind of, you know, reassert sure. his himself amongst the field because it feels like, you know, we don't know where he is physically. I'll also add, it's a very interesting section of the draw for Paola Bedosa, who, yeah, you know, is seemingly quarter. rounding her way into form, has a seemingly very winnable second round against, you know, an unhealthy or not on Shibor, potential third round against Marta Kostyuk, which could be a bit spicy. I don't know how close... Sure. They have been in the last year and a half since Bedos has gotten really close to Arena Sabalenka. Read into that. Um, <laughs> you know, this is a big opportunity for Paola Bedosa to like rocket back up the rankings. Is unseated here at a tournament in Rome. Shouldn't be unseated at a big tournament, in my opinion, based on how she's played uh, Miami, Stuttgart, and in Madrid. We want to see her back in the mix. And this is a big opportunity. She's, she's not having to play, you know. Elena Rabakina early sure. in, a, in, a, in a tournament or Arena Sabalenka. This is this is sort of one of those make or break moments for her. And similarly, for Krejcikova to make a deep run at a big tournament, it doesn't have to play a big player early. 
show us what you got, you know, sort of make or break for both of them. It would be very fascinating to see them meet off uh, in the quarterfinals should that happen. I love to hear. Well, with all that in mind, what can we expect from the tennis.com team throughout the course of uh, Rome? Oh, a nap. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Um, What what to expect? Just more of the same intense, intense coverage, intense social coverage from baseline, intense match reports from tennis.com. Obviously, I'm heading to Roland Garros. I'm gearing up for that. That's really where it's my big push is coming. I saved myself for the slams, you know, like like most of the top players. I don't I don't try to burn out too early on your Madrids and your Romes, but um, I'm really interested to see how this this draw shakes out. I think maybe by the end of the week, I'll be ready to you know get into some more tennis after getting a bit of a break, but uh, all in all, you can catch all of it on tennis.com and on baseline. Last question for you before I let you go. We did a lot of hours of college tennis broadcasting this past weekend. We had a ton of fun doing it. I know you were tuned in from the start. You didn't miss a minute. Here's my question though for you. Have I earned Cheesecake Factory tonight? Always yes. <laughs> it's just a definitive yes. It's it's always yes. You know, every time you want cheesecake, get cheesecake. Carpe well, cheesecake. The thing is, I don't think I'm going to get a cheesecake slice because I'm not a big cheesecake guy. I want everything else. That's I'm just in the mood for a lot of – I'm just so hungry. I just like – you don't eat during those broadcast days. And so like I'm like, I just need to eat a ton of food tonight. Where should I go? And I think that's my move. I miss it because I've been go- I've been hanging out with my Cheesecake Factory friends, but we haven't been getting Cheesecake Factory. We've been playing tennis, which is very bizarre. I don't know how we went literally from one extreme to the other. We've gone from eating just a total carbo load, calorie bomb, to the most exercise we could possibly be getting on a Thursday night. I don't love it, but I do love it because I love it for the content because I'm getting you some guys really were great- car- yeah. There is some good photographs out there. You've been grinding. Um, and I'm getting better. I'm getting better, you guys. I was we'll playing see. like garbage a month ago. I'm actually like I hit a backhand that didn't make me want to like claw my eyes out for the first time last week. It felt good. What's the pro comp? Are we thinking like Evanesian, Erica Andriva? I've gotten some weird recommendations. I got Jesse Pagula from Gilgros. I got up. Uh, I don't even. I can't even pronounce That's his name. Pandering. Peter Peter Gojo. Gojo Goljuswick. Goljuswick. Goyavchek. Goyavchek. Yeah, I was like. Thanks. I honestly <laughs> had no idea who you refer. But you I was like, like, oh, Peter I was like Check, hold on. That's hilarious. Who said that? Uh, that was Kenny Ducey. Oh, I'm, like, I'm getting my object from you. And I was like, what? That's actually <laughs> hilarious. That's maybe the I funniest mean, joke the Deuce has ever told. Yeah. Just Jesse Pagula. I don't know if that's really pandering because I, I would have wanted a Sabalenka. I would have wanted something a bit more. <laughs> Shiny and flashy, even no. even a Spiontech with my occasional extreme Western grip. I would have wanted something a bit this. more beefy. In, in your head, who do you hit like? Great question. Um, Thank you. It only took me 87 minutes. Oh, I mean, like earlier, I feel like it was very much modeled off of a, of a Martina Hingis. I just watched her so much growing up that I just feel like at the forehand swing, the backhand, very in my head, reminiscent of that. But I'm always trying to go for something bigger like i was a big old pusher when i was a teenager just moon ball the hell out of everything and i'm finally trying to like carve out something of point construction something resembling uh a winner i'm, I'm actually loosening up on the forehand as of the last couple of weeks i feel like i'm I've readjusted back into a semi-western grip i'm feeling 
better about things. I'm moving my feet. I was just very lazy and just trying to sweep over the ball, <laughs> trying to get something over the net. So I'm, I'm glad to be improving as quickly as I am. And before you know it, I'll be playing at the U.S. Open. Uh, yeah. So we got that. To, we've got that to look forward to in a couple months. No, that's always fascinating to hear. I've I've said it before. I'll say it again. I think the funniest thing in my head is when, or one of the funnier things is when Gil told me, "Yeah, you play like Andy Murray," and I was dying. I was like, "What do you mean?" He's like, "Well, you also walk around like you have a fake hip," and I was like, "That's funny." I was like, "That's pretty good." I was like, "You, that's the first good joke, Gil. Congrats." I was like, "I'll take that six-two victory along with it." Um, Gil Gross wants to play tennis with me on court seventeen. Are you jealous? <laughs> no. I, <laughs> it's like my favorite court. I can tell yes, you. Yes, yes, a thousand times yes. I can tell you definitively I am not jealous. Um, but with all of that said, I am always appreciative of having you on the show and appreciate all the work you and the Tennis.com team do. Of course, to any of our listeners looking to hear or read more from DK, go check out his Twitter at DKTNNS or Instagram because I know he's rocking and rolling as well there. Of course, a shout out to you. A shout out as always to our super producer, Daniel Westoff. What sort of a job does he have to do? DK. Oh, he does. He does a f-ing editing job. Absolutely. Day in, day out makes everything possible here at Crack Rackets. Of course, a shout out as well to the support we get from our friends at Tennis Point. Remember, it's tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With all that said, for the fantastic David Kane, our super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. DK, what do we tell our listeners? And that's the break. And we will see you all tomorrow. Thank you as always, my friend. Das Vidania.